This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitschow. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about the orchestra. And you might be thinking, wow, that's not marijuana by any stretch of the imagination. And you are right. It's not even social media. Yeah, we are going hard for our art mandate. And we're going to be talking about how the orchestra is a public good, even though many people do not directly receive public goodness from an orchestra by actually perceiving and visiting an orchestra performance. Which gets it into is, some interesting things, because what makes a public good? It's it's true. It's true. We're going to be talking all about that. And so we are particularly interested in this. Chris is a composer of uh, our theme song, but of also many other things. It's true. And I study musicians as my research agenda. That is what I do all day, essentially. So we both have a pretty long engagement with the orchestra. We both went to the University of Oklahoma, where the OKC Philharmonic has student tickets. It's pretty great. $10 for whatever seats they have available. Let's just say we went to a lot of orchestra concerts when I was in college. (laughs) Yes, yes. Chris went to even more than I did, but I went to some as well. And so we... We both really like classical music. I particularly like the more modern classical, which gets us to a point (laughs) that we're not actually going to use the word classical from here on out. We're going to use the word composed. Because classical makes people think stuffy, boring, old, lame. Not everyone, of course. I mean, Stephen and I just admitted that we really like what goes under the moniker classical. But the phrase composed music seems to better communicate what we're getting at, which is this is music that is composed as intentionally set out for an orchestra or a chamber group or something like that, and distinguished from something like rock music or pop music, which is generally put together in a very different way and constructed in a very different way, even when there's lots of influences blurring both directions between the two. Composed music it is. (laughs) Indeed. And so we also acknowledge that there is composed music for solo musicians. I am personally on a uh, mid-century Dutch tonal minimalism kick, a lot of it uh, solo piano music. Yep. What we're saying is that we really like this stuff and we are pro-orchestra <laughs> as well as pro the rest of composed music. However, not so many people are as actively enthusiastic and pro-orchestra as we are. Many people are ambivalent towards its existence, which is fine. Some people are hostile. Some people are not so happy about orchestras existing. And there are reasons that people state for being against orchestras. One is that they are a monolithic, gigantic organization that basically can't pay for itself to exist, which is legitimate. <laughs> kind of true all, for a lot of cases. All of those cases. <laughs> there are very few symphonies which do really, really profitable business. Most right. of them kind of scrape by. Yep. Break even maybe a little bit of profit, run a debt this year, hopefully make it up next year. You can find articles stretching all the way back to the year 1903, fretting about whether the symphony as an art form will survive based on the <laughs> economics and those those 
terrible people that don't like composed music anymore. <laughs> yeah. So there's a long history of of symphonies not being that great economically and people worrying whether we have all become heathens and stopped liking the arts and that sort of thing. So there is an argument that you can extrapolate from that to say like, well, then we should just kill the orchestra because it can't sustain itself, which is sort of sad and mean, but that's a thing. (laughs) That's a thing. If you put all your eggs in the market should determine value basket, that's a thing you get to pretty quickly on a lot of orchestras. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do that. No, as you'll hear in greater length throughout this episode, but also as you already know, if you've listened to pretty much any episodes of winning slowly before. (laughs) Right. So there's definitely that economic valuation argument. There's also a less common but perhaps more strident argument that uh, orchestra music is largely written by dead white men and that it enshrines a sort of labor and valuation and cultural hegemony through its repertoire that is out of touch with the current digital reality of art making and art consumption. Right, And that's a bit more contentious of a statement. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> it's a bit more contentious. We we admit that there are some economic issues with orchestras, but it is a far leap, although a, a pretty not uncommon one, mm-hmm. to say that the orchestra is out of touch. Right. It's been a very common refrain for a long time, in fact, because basically the orchestra is a bourgeoisie to aristocratic institution in many ways, at least as it's perceived. It is something that people with money go to, in part because it's expensive to put together 80 to 100 musicians and get them through the amount of training it requires to be able to play music at that level and then to assemble them all together and practice and have them rehearsing and have a conductor and have the space and all the things that go into, you know, actually performing orchestra music, Mm. those things make it expensive, which in turn make it less accessible to large segments of the population. You combine that with the fact that much composed music that we would lump into the classical category, as well, frankly, as a great deal of what was written in the 20th century, is a a learned or acquired taste for many people is probably the best way to put it. It's not as easily accessible. And I'm not using those terms either complementarily or pejoratively, but pop music is for the most part, I think unarguably more accessible and easier to get your head around at a basic level. Now there are plenty of exceptions to that. I've heard some incredibly sophisticated pop music. I've heard some Mm -hmm. incredibly sophisticated progressive rock stuff in particular Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in any genre. You're going to find those things. And on the other hand, you can find some pretty not that interesting musically composed music out there, but as a rule, it's harder to engage with, intellectually and emotionally and there are historical reasons why this is true in the early 1900s composers decided to just throw uh certain fingers in the air (laughs) and uh disregard disregard the the interest of uh the listener and or tonality and or what i basically conceive music to be but um (laughs) Of course, the uh, the learned taste thing is not specific to that. I would describe my own journey to appreciation of 
jazz or hip hop or rap in very similar terms for cultural right. background reasons, etc. Those are things right. I have come to appreciate, even though they were much less appealing to me than, say, Bach or Beethoven or Mozart right. or Brahms or whatever else. Listening to Lecrae, I still have to work at a lot more, and I really enjoy it when I do, but I have to work at that a lot more than I do listening to Bach's Mass in B minor, which is fantastic, but not accessible to most people the way it is to me, even as right. Lecrae is far more accessible to many people today than he is to me. Which is to say that you can learn to like composed music in the same way you can learn to like any type of music. I do this all the time because I, my job partially is a music critic and I learn the trends that are happening and I Sometimes I don't like them, and but I still need to be able to talk knowledgeably about them. I'm not a huge fan of industrial music, but I know what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. And there are even some elements of industrial music and some industrial songs that I enjoy. So all that to say... It's a lot of context. <laughs> orchestras can be contentious in a way that you might not imagine if you're just like, oh yeah, that's that thing that goes down at the place, you know, Over I, don't, there. I don't know, I never go there. <laughs> so, which might be how you generally relate to your local symphony or orchestra, depending yep. on the nomenclature. And so, without dedicating the whole episode to why orchestras are awesome, because they are, um, we're going to dig a little deeper than that. And we're going to focus on some of the underlying forces that actually make it worth saying this is awesome. Yeah. Particularly for those who don't go to the orchestra and thereby support the orchestra directly or indirectly through their taxes or lack thereof, and yet still are able to get some benefit out of the orchestra. That's where we're going today. So we're going to break this down, as we have been all season, into our three axes and a sub-axis. We'll touch that one today. But we're not going to do them quite in the same order. We're actually going to start off on the social-legal axis. And mm -hmm. preview, we think this is a positive, social, visible institution in the way it affects mm -hmm. individuals. But we'll mm -hmm. start, as I said, with social. On the whole, the existence of orchestras and the performance of composed music is not a structure that is enforced legally. At most, you can say that the existence of these kinds of things gets some degree of legal support or governmental support in the way of tax breaks by dint of being nonprofits. And they're nonprofits in part because they're not very profitable. They're not. Mm. Uh, but, but also because many cities and even at a national level at times, we have found it worth saying these things are institutions that we want to have around. We think they provide value to the community. So we'll give them a tax break. We'll say you can act as a nonprofit. That's fine. Go for it. In the same way that we do that with religious institutions, in the same way we do that with schools, in the same way we do that broadly with any number of institutions that we think are helpful, but which nonetheless are primarily social institutions. So mm -hmm. a private school, for example, might be a nonprofit, but it's primarily put together in social lines. It's organized on social lines. It's run on social lines. It attracts people to go to that school on social lines, etc. There are legal constrictions on it sometimes. Right. But the impetus is not the government setting up private schools. That's literally the opposite thing. Right, exactly. And the same thing is basically true of orchestras. Governments don't generally set up orchestras, although cities might want to incentivize their creation because of their perceived value in the arts community, etc. 
nonetheless, they don't normally run them. They don't normally do anything other than provide them tax breaks and maybe a very small, and we do mean in the picture of governments, sometimes very small annuities or stipends or whatever you want to call it to support them. But generally, it's just a group of people who like making this kind of music coming together and making whatever kind of business they can out of it, and the people of the community then participating in it and supporting it to whatever degree financially and culturally and socially, not least by panicking whenever there's a threat that an orchestra might get closed or shut down. Mm -hmm. And so we'll link to uh, a book that has some statistics um, from pretty recently, not uh, yesterday, but pretty recently about the breakdown of where orchestras get their money from. And largely it's uh, private donors, both corporate and mm-hmm. private in the sense of an individual. So there's definitely much more social organization going on than legal organization, although it must be admitted there is some. So moving on to the biggest chunk of what we want to talk about is the visibility of the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So this is a conundrum in that an orchestra is relatively visible. They try to market. They want many people to come to their concerts. They are open to the public. They may play the spare odd private event, but largely mm-hmm. orchestras are set up so that as many people as possible can get in the building. Right, up to and including the size of the buildings, which are often some of the largest performance centers you'll ever find anywhere outside of stadiums. Right, so they're set up in that way, and they want to be visible. And to some people, they seem ubiquitous. If you run in certain circles, everybody knows what's going on in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes those circles are uh, very old people. Sometimes if you're in Los Angeles, they have a, a... a symphony that is well known for uh, doing new music. And so they have a different sort of demographic breakdown. And so there's people who are outside that circle who may not know as much about the orchestra, may never come in contact with the orchestra, may not ever know that they want to go see an orchestral Mm -hmm. concert. May never have been to an orchestral concert. The argument here that has been tough for people to make is that orchestras are a public good for those people. Right. And that is largely the argument that people have to make to get government funding or anything other than individual personal funding. Even getting a business to support it often hinges on making those kinds of arguments, showing that there's some value to the community such that the business can be seen as investing in the community by way of investing in an orchestra. That's a very secondary kind of investment for a business. Right. Instead of just investing in old white people, which is is generally not the vision that people want to get. Right. Right. You don't want to say that this is, you know, welfare for rich people. Right. Like that's that's a phrase that has been bandied about, you know, in terms of support for an orchestra. Mm -hmm. So if the question is one of visibility, it is very visible to some people and invisible to others. How does a this become visible And B, even if it doesn't become visible, is an orchestra still a public good? Right. And what we think is that, first of all, it is good. As we said from the get-go, we think orchestras are a positive. But we also think that people's perception, and this is something we'll come back to time and again throughout the rest of the season, people's perception of the positive or negative 
impacts of any given institutional structure or institution itself, in the case of something like an orchestra, often depends on how visible it is. Now, in this case, we think that how positive people perceive an orchestra to be largely, not uniformly, but largely depends on how much they're aware of it. Did they get to go to or participate in orchestras in their school growing up? I know for my part, Growing up, I did get to go to kids' concerts and things like that. And also there were bands that you could participate in in school. We didn't have an orchestra, and that was a source of considerable frustration to me. As a composer, I had to rescore things so that it could be played by the band instead of the orchestra, and that was lame. What up, brass? Uh, <laughs> lots, of, lots of saxophones instead of strings. <laughs> but other, other schools in the area had orchestras, etc., all of that to say, we do think that people who are more exposed to orchestras are likelier, much likelier, to think that the existence of orchestras is a good thing. And broadly, the people who just have little or no exposure to them, they're not part of their world in a mental or emotional sense. They may not even be aware of what the orchestra is doing or that their city even has an orchestra. For those people, if they find out, oh, we have an orchestra and we give them a tax subsidy, by dint of its invisibility in their lives, it's going to seem more of a negative structure to them, mm. or at the least less of an actively positive structure. Mm -hmm. Whereas we look at it, and for its educational value, its broad effects on culture in general, in providing a kind of art that is good, even as we would affirm that a lot of hip-hop is a kind of art that is good, even as we would affirm grudgingly perhaps in my case that country may include some music that is good <laughs> yo yo that's my bread and butter over here that alt country I, I i said grudgingly but i do admit it mm, yes but those kinds of things we think all of these forms are are good i think that the native american stomp dance that my perhaps overly enthusiastic instructor in ethnomusicology as a freshman in college oh, I took that class just too. loved to gush about <laughs> She loved it, and we got so tired of hearing about it. But I think that's a really good thing, and we want those things to exist. Well, composed music is one of those things that we want to exist because we think it is a real cultural good. It is a kind of beauty right. that should exist in the world. But if you've never been exposed to it, you don't get that. And right. in the same way that it took a lot of exposure for me to appreciate hip-hop, it can take a lot of exposure for people to get it. In, in a lot of ways, then, the impact on people's lives is directly a function of its visibility. And so some people who are more in the art circles might be thinking to themselves, okay, you're just doing the whole cheerleader bit. Like, if everybody knew that the orchestra was here, then everybody would love the orchestra, and then everything would be great. And that's, that's not exactly where we're going. We're not saying that the orchestra is intrinsically incredible. Nope. And for like anybody who comes in contact with it will become an acolyte. Like <laughs> that is that is not where we're going here. However, no. we do think that the mix of arts in mm -hmm. a community is valuable in more ways than just economic valuation. As we yep. mentioned at the beginning of the show, there are non-economic valuations that we can put on things and we can stand behind with almost as much certainty. People who have numbers on their side are always certain to their uh, sometimes good and bad ends. <laughs> but we, we can look at the mix of arts and say arts overall – bring good things to this community. They provide things for people to do, whether those people are 8 or 13 or 30 or 50. They provide a 
experience of life and an expectation of the way that urban spaces are constructed, mm -hmm. whether that's through public art or through the types of music that is being played over speakers or in the types of festivals that are part of the city's life. Arts are a part of a thriving cultural experience of living in a city. That's almost what being in a city means is that there are a wide array of experiences available to you, some of which are artistic and some of which are technological and some of which are anything. And so we argued that the orchestra, partially because it kind of can't support itself, <laughs> is, a, is a critical bellwether of whether your cultural experience of the society uh, or your city's cultural health is is good in that there is a enough of a mix of arts and enough money going around through the whole arts ecosystem that that's possible for the orchestra to survive. Right. If you have a, a city, a community that appreciates that variety in the arts, by and large, you will have institutions like orchestras or like museums with art collections and mm -hmm. independent artists being able to work and thrive there and so on. And those kinds of things are a kind of cultural health. They're a kind of systemic health. Now, they're far from the only kind, and you can have all mm -hmm. of those things going well and have a catastrophically horrible racist system. So right. <laughs> by no means is this the only kind we should ever focus on. But right. on the flip side of that, neither should we ignore the goodness of these kinds of things because there are other things that should also be worked on, other kinds of health that we want to cultivate. Right. As, as human beings, we don't think that we only exist in one way or in one context or in one sphere. We think that human thriving, human flourishing, as God intended it, is a matter of all of these pieces of our lives being well-ordered. And that means making good art. And some good art can only be made by 120 people sitting around with trumpets hidden behind the stage so that you can play Mahler's Resurrection Symphony. <laughs> That's an amazing piece of music. You can't do that without that massive kind of investment in the same way that something like the blue man group, which is completely different also takes a very large number of people and a large venue and a lot of investment mm -hmm. to be able to mm -hmm. create. And these are artistic goods that we think provide uh, what Stephen has described as an ambient civic good. It is not something that necessarily immediately touches your life in a way that you're conscious of, but it's nonetheless good, and it's good in ways that impact the whole culture around you right? in ways that you probably cannot quantify and wouldn't be better even if you could quantify them. Right. And so there's an element here where it has to do with diversity, the diversity of experience. And so some people have said that, like, Pushing classical music hard eliminates other things. If some people do it to eliminate other things, that's bad. Boo, um, don't but, do that. <laughs> but, and we don't support that. But we think that it's just as important to have a really thriving hip-hop community as mm -hmm. it is to have a really thriving orchestral community and a really thriving metal community and mm -hmm. a really thriving spoken word poetry community. We want all of these things to be a part of of the civic life so that, you know, if you come across something when you're in your life, this is a largely urban argument, but then this is an urban argument because there aren't a whole lot of 
rural orchestras, although there are some. And they're pretty cool. And they're pretty great. Um, and they have a very distinct tie to their community in mm-hmm. ways that some other types of orchestras and some other art forms can't really have. But largely urban phenomenon. If you're walking around your city and you just come upon a slam poetry thing happening in your park, that's, that's pretty awesome. Even if you, it's pretty awesome. And even if you don't stop by that part of you, you're just exposed to this level of diversity. So we tend to talk about diversity in terms of uh, race and in terms of physical characteristics and these mm-hmm. identity sorts of things, but diversity of artistic expression and diversity of experience is just as important in, I think our holistic opinion of mm-hmm. how life works to cultivate. And I think that putting an orchestra in that mix and keeping it in that mix is again, a sign that the rest of that is going well. Right. And one big thing that comes out of that, then we think for orchestras, engaging specifically the local community, finding composers, and especially because there is, to be frank, an awful lot of music written by very rich white guys in the last several centuries that's the primary play of many orchestras. Like We'll freely admit that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that orchestras can do to break down some of those barriers, some of that source of hostility, and to increase engagement with people who might not otherwise be engaged, if you've got a black woman composer who you can feature her work, well, one, she's going to be pulling in a lot of influences, most likely, that are not just those white guys. Mm-hmm. But you're also going to have an opportunity to make a point of engagement with parts of your community that you're otherwise less likely to touch. And those things are all goods. And that diversity also involves those kinds of feedback loops where you have different art cultures touching each other and remixing mm-hmm. and coming together. And mm-hmm. hey, guess what? The most definitively American art form, jazz, came out of just that kind of a mixing and mashing together of different art cultural backgrounds. And it's fantastic. And it was, Mm -hmm. admittedly, a learned taste for me, but it's an amazing musical development that -hmm. couldn't have happened without that kind of cultural diversity and cultural Mm -hmm. mixing and producing new fruit. So more of that. More of that. (laughs) And part of the reason that there, there aren't as many composers who aren't white and male is that uh, our school systems in America, while doing an admirable job of trying to get arts into schools and keeping Mm -hmm. them there, do not succeed as well as we can in getting arts into low funded and underfunded schools, whether they be rural, urban or suburban, Mm -hmm. because those exist everywhere and putting and keeping arts into those school districts is deeply important for not just the that school or those people or those students or that area, but the whole civic life of mm-hmm. that arena, whether it's a city or a metropolitan area or whatever it is, that is a critical element um, that is invisible and that needs to be made more visible. We need to have more funding in schools for the arts, and that's not just a secondary thing to whatever else needs to get funded. Right. It provides goods that though they're less measurable than engineering degrees are just as valuable. Yes. And that's what we're sticking to, (laughs) even though we don't have numbers. Precisely because we don't have numbers. Amen. Take that. Hallelujah. (laughs) The intro music was Generation Love by John Reynolds. We used it by permission. Please don't use it without permission. 
Thanks to Andrew Fallows, Jeremy W. Sherman, and Kurt Klassen for sponsoring the show this month. If you'd like to sponsor the show, go to patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. 10% of whatever you give us goes to the Internet Archive because as much of a mess as the Internet can be at times, it'd be nice to know what someone said on it in 20 years. As always, we appreciate it when you share the podcast with friends, post it on social media, or when you rate and review us in iTunes or any other podcast app directory. And that kind of support is actually the biggest way you can support the show. The digital world is weird, y'all. We also very much enjoy hearing from you. You can send your comments our way on Twitter at Winning Slowly, at our Facebook page, although neither of us really check Facebook all that often right now, or by going to the mid-90s but still awesome route and sending us an email at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. saw that <laughs> steven just yeah. took a bite of food that's I totally did. glowing in the boopers <laughs> yeah also i just I... said totally glowing in the boopers which i don't <laughs> even know what that means but at least that weirdness came out there instead of uh there in the show go. proper yeah Whew. um <laughs> woo.